Romans 8:28. Joseph was the son of Rachel, you know, born to Jacob in his old age, and he was the favorite. In his youth, Joseph had two remarkable dreams, resulting in the hatred of his brothers and even the suspicion of his mom and dad. His brothers plotted to kill him, but ultimately they only sold him into slavery. They deceived their father by dipping Joseph's coat of many colors into the blood of a goat, assuring him that they had found it as the evidence Joseph had been torn apart by a wild animal. Joseph was sold to Potiphar, an officer of the Egyptian pharaoh. On a false sexual assault charge, he was thrown into prison. In prison, he enjoyed the confidence of the warden, and he ended up interpreting the dreams of the butler and the baker of Pharaoh. He let the butler know that in three days he'd be exonerated and restored to his position. The baker would not fare so well. Within three days, he would be executed and his body hung on a tree. Sometime later, Pharaoh had two dreams that his wise men could not interpret. Suddenly, the butler remembered Joseph and the young man was called into the presence of the Pharaoh. Pharaoh told Joseph his dreams. In the first dream, he stood by the river and saw seven well-favored and fat cattle come up out of the river and feed in a meadow, and seven other cattle that were ill-favored and lean followed and devoured them. Then in the second dream, he beheld seven ears of corn upon a stalk, and they were followed by seven thin and blasted ears by which they were devoured. Joseph understood that the dreams were really one dream and predicted that there would immediately follow seven years of plenty, succeeded by seven years of extreme famine. Pharaoh clothed Joseph in royal robes, made him ride in the second chariot, and he required the people to prostrate themselves before him when he passed. He was second in command to Pharaoh. Joseph began to make preparations for the famine, gathered corn as the sand of the sea and stored it in the cities. The famine began as Joseph had predicted and it covered the entire land, extending even to Canaan. Jacob sent his sons to Egypt to buy corn. Joseph recognized them, but they did not know him. He supplied their wants and they returned to their home. After some real drama that we don't have time to get into, Joseph finally made himself known to his brothers and he sent for his father to come to Egypt. The children of Israel were thus saved from extinction during the famine and they began to multiply and thrive in Egypt. At one point in this amazing story, Joseph had a revelation about God that still reverberates down through the ages. Upon revealing himself to his brothers and reconciling with them, he declared in Genesis 50 verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Think too of Jacob's perspective. Joseph was gone. Reuben was disgraced. Judah was dishonored. Simeon and Levi had broken his heart. Dinah was defiled. Simeon was in prison in Egypt, as a matter of fact, at the time. Rachel was dead. Famine threatened to kill his entire family. And on top of all this, there comes a demand from the person second in command to Pharaoh that young Benjamin, his favorite son, be brought before him. Listen to what Jacob said. This is Genesis 42:36. Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. In fact, all things were not against him, but they were working together 
according to God's plan. Same plan, same situation, everything going on as God had ordered it. Joseph finally realizing all things work together for good. Jacob up to a certain point thinking all things work together for bad. Uh, It's very interesting, these two perspectives. The truth that Joseph and Jacob learned so fully and so remarkably was not just for them. It was a window into God's dealings with all his children. It would be restated in that verse we're all very familiar with, Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. You are a Joseph, or I guess I'd have to say a Josephine. Uh, We all are. We can all declare Romans 8, 28 for ourselves. It's a promise whose only condition is that you be saved in order to claim it. One commentator called this verse a soft pillow for a tired heart. Dr. J. Vernon McGee said, if Romans is the greatest book of the Bible and chapter 8 is the high watermark, then verse 28 is the pinnacle. It's almost hard uh, to, you know, to not say something great about this verse. And it's hard to exaggerate the encouragement, the reassurance, and the comfort you find in Romans 8.28. All of us have many times pillowed our hearts upon it. And it's probably the verse we would give others most often in their time of need. Uh, You know, it's just one of those nuggets. Now, we're going to look at everything before the comma tonight. The second part, to those who are the called according to his purpose... That's explained in verses 29 and 30. It's a phrase that's very important, of course, because it establishes that this verse is for believers. But what that really means is explained for us in verses 29 and 30. We're going to find in the explanation that God's purpose is that we be conformed into the image of His Son. He's making us more like Jesus until one day when we are face to face with Him We who were foreknown by God, who were called and justified, will be finally and fully glorified. In fact, we'll see that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Once you are saved, nothing can stop that. God, who began the transformation in you, has promised to perform it until it is finished the day you see Jesus Christ in person. Now, we'll get to that next time, Lord willing. There's a lot going on between the time you are justified and the moment you are finally glorified. Uh, We call it our life. In terms of our future and eternity, time-wise, it's a drop in the bucket. More like a drop in the ocean. I mean, when you consider eternity, I mean, I I can't because, and it's really beyond us. I mean, we we still think in terms of long periods of time when I, I think time will have a whole different meaning. But, I mean compared to the billions upon billions of years that you know eternity will unfold for, the relatively short period of time, you know, I was saved in my 20s, maybe I lived to 80, so what, I'm, you know, for five or six decades, I'm, I'm walking with the Lord, uh, drop in the ocean as far as what's coming. <clears throat> but that's where we live, it's, it's where we are, and so uh, Paul addresses that right now. Uh, and it's good to have for lack of a better term, a philosophy for how we're going to approach life right now. And there's nothing better, I think, than Romans 8.28. No matter what's going on, the Bible says all things are working together for good to the Christian. Uh, And I can claim that any time. 
The verse begins by reminding us that we know this. It means that we know it intuitively. That's the particular word that's used. It's by intuition. Now, I don't know about you, but I think of intuition almost as superstition. Just something that you, you think you might know. We, we talk about a woman's intuition, not, which, by, by the way, is always right. But, uh, but you know, it, it's sort of like one of those things where it's, it's, it's just a feeling or it's an idea. But that's not the meaning of the word. Intuition is the direct perception of truth independent of reasoning. And so, in other words, something is true. And you perceive it to be so without reasoning it out. So it's true whether you believe it or not, it's still true. Two plus two is four, whether you want to believe it or not. Uh, but in this case, you, know, you also know it intuitively. Uh, it's perceived that way by you without you having to actually figure it out or know mathematics. It's an immediate apprehension of truth. So we're being told here that you and I have the direct perception of the absolute truth that all things work together for good. So whatever you're going through, wherever you're at, even right now, God says this is something you know. You might be blocking it out, you might not be meditating on it, you might not be thinking about it, but He says this is something every Christian knows. How is it directly perceived? How do I know this by intuition? Well, for one thing, by definition, if I'm a Christian, I am indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. And we learned... Uh, in our studies in Romans, that His indwelling guarantees that what God has begun in me, He will absolutely complete. And so the very presence of God, the Holy Spirit, in my life proves that God is working in me and since it's God who's doing it, He will work all things together for good. And so I know by intuition... I don't have to reason it out because when I get saved, there's another person living within me, the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of everything that God has promised me, including this promise. And so I, I just know it. And so I, I, know, I may not experience it, I may not feel like it today or tomorrow or when I'm going through a trial or maybe even when I'm being blessed, but God says He is working all things together for good. And if I will just stop for a minute and think about it and realize that I'm, I have the Holy Spirit, I know that to be true. Besides that, God the Holy Spirit is constantly testifying to our spirit that everything is really under control and it will work out to the glory of God, resulting in our good. The Lord gives us a testimony in our hearts. You've undoubtedly experienced at least some things working together for good, have you not? I mean... Uh, in your Christian life, there are things that you can look back on. And, uh, you know, I guess sometimes people in the world would call them coincidences, but they're really God's providence. Decisions that God has made or that you've been directed to make that put you in a particular place at a particular time. And because of that, God's will was made alive in your life. And, and uh, it, you know, all of us have, so it, it maybe may it's a small thing, but even the small things are important. But everyone has that kind of a testimony at, at some point. And what Paul is saying is, yeah, that's what's going on all the time in your life. And when you get to the end of your life, you'll see how it was all woven together, how it all worked together for good. Even when you didn't think that what was happening was good. The hardest part is that all things are said to work together for good. 
And that means each, every, any, all, the whole, all things, everything. That's, those are the possible definitions of the word all. Even bad things doesn't say they're good. It says they work together for good. And that's why I spent some time at the beginning talking about Joseph and Jacob. Joseph, at any point in that story, uh, you could look at that. If, you, you know, if you've never read the Bible before and you're reading the story of Joseph and you're thinking, I don't know what I signed on for here. Uh, I mean, until you get to his declaration of what's going on, you think God has lost his mind. And here he is, the favored son, and then he falls in out of favor and all these terrible things that we delineated go on in his life. He's falsely accused. He's maybe, you know, he's the only believer in an entire nation of weird people. I mean, you think you have it rough at work or in your neighborhood. I mean, he's the only Hebrew in Egypt. Yeah, and he's and besides that, and then, you know, he's falsely accused of, of not just a crime, a terrible crime, sexual assault, and he's thrown into prison and um yeah, you're just plugging away. Any, any point during that narrative, you would have thought, this is crazy. Until finally his brothers show up and then you and I start to figure out, oh, this is going to have a great ending. God meant it for good. Same thing with the perspective of Jacob. I mean, Jacob's life was terrible when you look at it from his perspective for a time. Uh, but God meant it for good and worked together. Jacob's actual assessment was that things were working against him, but we know they weren't. And then we go back and reread that story again, chapter 42, when Jacob makes that, we just shake our head and say, oh, just hang in there, man. This is going to be one of the greatest stories of all time, if you only knew what was going on. And so this working together, it's really all on God, isn't it? He's the one doing it. I think that is abundantly clear in the lives of Joseph and Jacob. By the way, we could take any Bible character, because this is true of all of us and all of them, but these are the guys that really flesh this out. And jo- Joseph pretty much quotes this before it's in Romans. I mean, he says, you, you know, you guys meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And, and, and so, uh, you know, this is uh, very clear in their lives. They had no idea there was anything working together. Especially Jacob, whose actual assessment was that it was bad. And so, this was all God behind the scenes. So, what does Paul mean when he says all things work together for good to those who love God? Does the quality of my love affect his working things out? Some people think so, but it doesn't. This loving on our part does not qualify in any way the extent of God's promise. It doesn't nullify it. It's not a condition. God isn't looking at me saying, Gene, you don't love me enough today, so I can't really make all things work together for your good the way that I'd like. And you know, that's just how we think. We, we, don't, we, we almost can't believe that God is as gracious as He is. On the one hand. On the other hand, we want to make real contribution to what God is doing. We're not content to believe that He's doing it. And so, uh, what does it mean to those who love Him? Well, those who love God seems to be a synonym for believers. You could, I don't recommend you do this, but you might cross it out and just say to believers, because this is what Paul intends. 
1 Corinthians 2.9, Ephesians 6.24, 2 Timothy 4.8, James 2.5. Those who love the Lord is, in fact, a synonym for those who have believed. For example, in James 2.5 we read, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? It's implied that those who love Him are those James addressed as beloved brethren. He says, hey, you are the beloved brethren of God and you need to know that you are rich in faith, you who love God. And he doesn't say you who really love God or the five or six of you that really have broken through. I mean, he just says, you know, you're a Christian, you're beloved of God, you're the ones who love God. Besides, and this is kind of interesting, it's, it's kind of a mind twister to me, since God is working how many things together? All things? That would include my poor response to His work, wouldn't it? It included Jacob's poor response to His work. Jacob was blowing it. I mean, here God was doing... You know how hard it is to get all these pieces in motion? To have a famine just when it's supposed to have just the right Pharaoh, to have Jacob and Joseph and all his brothers and all this stuff, to have a cistern ready for them to throw him in for... a hairy band of Ishmaelites to be coming by just at the right time for him to be sold into slavery rather than thrown into jail to, you know, to have all this stuff. I mean, you know, the butler and the baker and all this stuff. I mean, this is a big plan. And Jacob said, my life is nothing. Everything's against me. And God didn't say, well, man, you just ruined everything. I can't work that out now. And if you only knew what I was going to do, but now I'm going to have to, you know, I'm going to have to go to plan B because you don't love me enough. And so it includes, so even if, I, if, if I'm a Jacob in this situation rather than a Joseph, I mean, and they really do have kind of alternate personalities. I mean, Joseph, Joseph remained faithful throughout all of that. I mean, it was tough on him. I mean, you know, uh, I, I, I think to me one of the most... Uh, one of the saddest moments is when he says, you know, to the to the butler, "Hey, remember me. You know, think about me when you get into Pharaoh's house. I, I interpreted your dream. I mean, do something. Help me." And the guy immediately forgets him and leaves him in the prison. Yeah, but Jake, uh, Joseph remains faithful. He's you would always look at him and say, "Well, he loves God. He, he remains." you know, sexually pure in, in that situation. I'm, I'm not going to touch Potiphar's wife because, because why? Because I love God. And then, you know, Jacob is the complete opposite. The guy, you know, just, I see him just sitting out on a stump all day, just being bitter and angry. I mean, now he had plenty, I guess, from a human perspective. I mean, he had a bunch of weird kids and all the strange things that they did. You know, they're... Uh, you know, he made a bunch of foolish, you know, decisions and stuff. But, you know, but God, it's the same plan that affected all of them and God worked it out. And so it didn't depend at all on how much or how little they loved him. And so God is working all things together and that includes a Jacob-like attitude that thinks God is really against me when he's for me. And so the only condition I can see in Romans 8.28 is that you're a believer. And so if you're a believer, then God is doing this work in you. He's working all things in your life together for an ultimate good. Speaking of building, 
think I've told you before, I'm sure I have because I only have so many stories, but uh, Pam and I had a house built one time in the San Bernardino Mountains. It sounds more grand than it was. It was a little kind of tract home. Uh, I think it was maybe a thousand square feet. It was cool. I mean, it was cool living up there and it was a neat little house. But So we had this house built. Our builder turned out to be a slothful drunk. We were a year getting into the house after it was built. So the house is built, they drug it out, you know, it took forever to build it, and then we could never get final inspection. I, I found out a long time after that's because he had changed the plans without getting them approved, and so when they came out for the final inspection, everything was just wrong. Uh, and anyway, we finally got to move into the house. <coughs> um, I would have to track him down at the Golden Elk which was the local watering hole there. And so he'd tell me he was going to do something and I would go up there and find out that he didn't do it and then I would, no one's working on the house and so I would go to the Golden Elk and, you know, he'd be drinking and I'd be talking and, you know, and that was pretty much the extent of it. Finally, I don't know how it got done, but it got done. Our builder certainly was not working at all, let alone for our good. But God's not like that. He's the wise master builder of lives. If it seems he's halted construction, then he's working in a way that can't be seen or understood at the moment. But you can be absolutely certain that he is at work. Now the language guys say that work together, which is our word synergy, is active voice present tense. That means God's work is continual, it never ceases, it never halts. And so I don't do anything per se as a condition for God to be working in this synergy, to just be working out His plan for good in my life. I'm not exactly passive though. I can be more like Joseph, believing things are working out when there's little evidence of it, or I can be like Jacob, wallowing in an attitude that everything is against me. And I'm sure there's shades in between, or there's times I'm like Joseph and times I'm like Jacob. Certainly I'm like Joseph when things are good. I'm more like Jacob when things don't seem good, or they're in the category that I would say is more of a suffering. Since we are those who love God, we may as well experience loving Him every single moment of every single day. It's really to our benefit. It's for our best life, no matter what our circumstances. Think of your kids. You really can't stop loving them or raising them. I mean, you just, you know, you love your kids uh, and, and you're going to raise them. For their part, they can cooperate with you or they can make life miserable. But you're committed to seeing it through and getting them grown and gone. It's, these illustrations are, you know, they're always, they're not great because God is way different than a human parent. But you, you can understand. Even if you've had, even if you, you know, look back and say, well, my parents, they were miserable people or whatever. I mean, there's an ideal situation where in your own heart you know that, you know, you love your children and you, you want what's best for them and you, you, in a sense, you know, you maybe don't have a master plan for their life, but you have some idea of getting them grown up and, and 
all your thoughts are towards them and you want to provide for them and you want them to have a better life than you did unless maybe you're Johnny Cash and you name them Sue or some, you know, something weird like that, unless you're into country music, and then it's a whole different reality. But anyway, uh, so you know, you, you, that's the ideal situation. But your kids, they don't always cooperate. From the youngest age, they, they want to test you know, that and they want to rebel and they want to go their own way. And when they resist and disobey and rebel, they still love you. They do. They're just not experiencing the relationship that they could have with you. And you sit there and you think, I've even said this to, you know, I say, you'd be better off just doing this. Just do it. Everybody will be happy. You don't know how happy we'll all be. We'll be able to get the ice cream. You remember, the, didn't Baskin Robbins, was it Baskin Robbins had those ads, you know, where, you know, they, if you don't pick up your toys, you know, you can't have ice cream. And then the other parent would do all the work and stuff, you know, because, and, and so, but that every parent knows what I'm talking about. There's like, you just, all you have to do, just, just pick it up. If you would just pick it up, we could go on with life happily. There'd be no spanking, there'd be no discipline, there'd be ice cream and party time and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, 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 and so from the, from the child's perspective, this is a misery. I, I just, how are all things working together for good when I have to pick up my toys right now? I don't want to do that. I don't see how this contributes to anything in the greater scheme of things. All, this is terrible that you would require this. It's too much for me. I can't handle it. I can make the mess, but I can't clean it. I need help. I need real help. And all the while you're thinking, you know, we could, why are we even doing it? But still you think, I mean, you don't sit there and think, okay, that's it, I can't raise you. I'm done. If you're not going to put away your army men, your green army men, then it's over. You're, I'm going to have to, you're no longer my child. I, I'm kicking you out of the house. Go to the curb. Find somebody else. You know? That doesn't happen. And so it's the same thing with God. I can cooperate with it. I can love God. I, he, can, you know, he can put me in a situation and I can say, all right, I mean, this, this, is, uh, you know, this is a disease. Wow, okay. Really? Okay. Can I pray about it? Sure, you can pray. Paul prayed three times and then God said, yeah, I'm, why don't you pray about something else because this is for you. This is your light affliction. It's but for a moment. It's working a far better weight of glory for you. And Paul received that. Paul understood. He said in one place that I, I need to learn in all things how to be content. And so Paul understood. He said, I might as well love God knowing He loves me and, and just kind of flow with this situation. Why? Because my overall philosophy is he's working all things together for good. And I have zero idea how what's happening right now can be good. And, then, and not that it's good, but how it can even work together for good. You know, this, this illness, this disease, this death, this tragedy, this whatever it might be, I don't, I don't see in any dimension how this can work together for good. But I know by intuition that it will. And I might as well go with it. I might as well understand that. I might as well live that way. Otherwise, I'm not going to experience the joy of having a relationship with my father going through this. We'll be at odds with one another. He's still going to take me through it. He's still going to see it through. One day I'm going to awake in the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's going to happen. There's no doubt about that. There's no stopping. That train has left the station, as they say. Remember that old expression? When you've been born again, God says, I have begun a good work in you and I will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. 
Along the way, you can enjoy it more or less. That's up to you. And, and really, it's as simple as, do I identify with Joseph or do I identify with Jacob? And they, they had different experiences. It's hard to compare the, the pain that Jacob had as a parent and all the potential and all that. with what jo- But I think you understand. They had two vastly different attitudes. Joseph wasn't perfect. None of us are perfect. Um, Jacob wasn't all bad. But that's the decision. So Romans 8.28, it stands. God works all things together for good to believers. Period. And we'll see more about what it means to be a believer and how you get that way next time. We'll take on some heavy stuff. But this is all we need for tonight. And then it's just, okay, I, I want to Joseph this out in my life. I want to flesh this out the way Joseph did. Or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to essentially be a Jacob about it. And, and I, think, I think I know where I want to be. Uh, but I'm not always there. And, and uh, so it's, a, it's an exciting thing to think. Uh, that it's all good and, and that God is really for me. And if he's for me, who can be against me? Amen? Amen. All right. All things work together for good.